0: You're listening to the Living Leadership Podcast, Growing Disciple-Making Leaders. The following address by Jonathan Lamb is on the subject of grace and God's power in our weakness. It is taken from the book of 2 Corinthians and was delivered at the 2008 Living Leadership Pastoral Refreshment Conference. Well, let's pray together, shall we, as we come to consider verses, Father, it's not easy to come from travels into a quiet moment in your presence and to reflect on your word. Um, Our minds are buzzing with uh, perhaps things we've left behind, things that uh, we'd like to have done but couldn't achieve, colleagues or family members who are working or under pressure. And so we ask for your grace that uh, coming to this very familiar passage of Scripture you will remind us again of the great truth of the gospel and the way that impacts Christian ministry, and that this will strengthen us for the service which you've called us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, uh, this is not the only uh, significant event that is taking place today. It's also Super Tuesday. And uh, you may have been following um, the papers and the reports of the presidential hopefuls. I want to ask you a question. Uh, What do you make of Hillary Clinton's tears? Uh, She's on the front page of the Times today, actually shedding a tear, her left eye, according to the Times. And um, it's getting mixed responses, this emotional moment which apparently led her to uh, some considerable success in New Hampshire. Um, On the other hand, is seen by some of her own campaign members as... A potential weakness, not just in her, but in their campaign. After all, fairly soon she will have to face the Republican attack machine, as it's called. The opposition candidates, of course, considered that Hillary's moment of apparent weakness was nothing of the sort. It was carefully contrived to give fresh impetus to her flagging campaign, Um, And there are many around the world who say, well, this is a very good sign that she's no longer the ice maiden that we always thought she was. Uh, Here is the true humanity of a leader. Uh, On the other hand, as I've implied, weakness for some people, displayed even in that simple way, is not what we expect of leaders. In our own culture, certainly up until relatively recently, the qualities that we look for, as often, has been, as often has been said, the qualities we look for in a Christian leader, a bishop, are very similar to the qualities we look for in a prime minister. Uh, leaders are people who cope. Uh, leaders have strength. Uh, they are bold. They are assertive. They are powerful. They carry a power briefcase and wear a power suit, or least they used to in the 80s and 90s. Uh, they exude confidence. Uh, With every commanding step, they are demonstrating that they are in control. Well, Paul actually confronted very similar attitudes in his day, and although there's a change in our culture with regard to that particular attitude, hence the diversity of opinion about uh, Hillary Clinton's emotional moments, it was precisely because Paul failed to match up to a particular image of uh, of, of leadership in his day that he was criticised very aggressively, and the significant feature of this letter, which uh, you'll be very familiar with, is expressed in the verses which we read from chapter 12. So let me just, um, so I'm going to have to uh, make sure that I operate this in the right way. Um, at the heart for Paul, at the heart of the Christian message, and therefore at the heart of his Christian ministry, lay the painful paradox which we read from 2 Corinthians 12. Um, it's a paradox, of course which uh, modern people, uh, particularly with their passion for power or for prestige, find very difficult to cope with. Uh, It regards it as foolishness. But for the Christian, for people like us in Christian service, it is actually the only thing which makes sense of the gospel and the only thing which makes sense of the ups and downs of our Christian ministry. There it is again. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, the planning group chose um, uh, passages from 2 Corinthians because this letter, of course, uh, breathes this atmosphere of God's grace in the midst of weakness. And this word from the Lord represented a very important breakthrough for Paul. He came to understand his weakness in relation to the gospel message which he was to proclaim. Uh, you only need to think, what is the Gospel after all? And this is, of course, exactly how Paul would present it. It is God at work through the crucified Jesus. It is God at work through the apparent weakness and foolishness of the cross. So it's no surprise that the Gospel should reach Gentiles through the weakness of the messenger, through the Apostle Paul. Now, of course, to do this was uh, not... uh, uh, from from Paul's point of view was not to be defeatist Um, as you read through this letter you'll be familiar with the catalogues of suffering which he records, he was being very realistic he was being quite sober as he described in each of these catalogues uh, the torrent of troubles the variety of uh, events which were pushing him to the limits of his endurance his missionary work was quite literally killing him And it wasn't only the opposition which he faced from those who were against the gospel. Uh, It wasn't simply the physical hardships, the sleepless nights and the beatings which he describes in some of those catalogues. One of the most painful experiences for him, of course, was the sense of rejection from the Christian community in Corinth itself. The people whom he loved to whom he opened his heart, and yet who seemed somehow to respond uh, with this rather stony silence. In fact, not only that, uh, the gathering opposition within the church, uh, the smear campaigns, all of the uh, difficulties which he describes in this letter, Paul had done everything he could to bring the gospel to them, and yet others were casting doubt on his ministry and his motives. But Paul, as he writes this letter, and in these key verses in chapter 12 saw that it was precisely at this point of vulnerability and weakness that the power of the gospel was displayed he'd understood his weakness in relation to the gospel his weakness in relation to the theology of the cross his struggles, he saw were a mark of his identification with Jesus Christ and with the nature of the gospel and indeed they were the prerequisite for effective Christian ministry he could boast in 1210, as we just read, when I am weak, then I am strong. In fact, my father, to whom I referred a moment ago, um, when I was, uh, shortly after I became a Christian when I was five, I then contracted polio, uh, which affected both of my legs and both of my arms. And my children think it affected my head as well. <laughs> and, um, uh, going through um, that experience, particularly as a young Christian, um, I always remember a very simple illustration from my father, which I think sums up the theology of 2 Corinthians. Uh, Christians are like a tea bag. Their real strength is drawn only when they get into hot water. And uh, I remember him telling me, and uh, it's exactly the theology of this letter, that uh, the, the resources which we need for Christian service are best experienced in those moments so I want to look at this section in chapter 4 the primary will we'll be working through and uh, we'll do it under four headings to try and explore how Paul was able to live with uh, this issue of grace and power and weakness as I say it's familiar territory but I hope it will in its own way be refreshing again as we look at it first of all weakness is the occasion for God's power verses 7 to 9 As Paul previously writes about the power and glory of the gospel in the opening section of chapter 4, he is reminded by contrast of those very things we've just been talking about, his own frailty and his weakness. First of all, a word about power and Christian ministry. He goes straight in, in verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now it's a very familiar metaphor and uh, writers and commentators and preachers use a variety of images to describe what he's getting at here in verse 7. One may be that uh, Paul is talking about a cheap pottery lamp. Uh, The more cracks there are within the lamp the better it is because that allows the lights to shine. Or it may be he's reflecting back to uh, chapter 2 with the triumphal procession of the army when he thinks about the uh, jar pots. Uh, in which the treasure, the booty after war, has been collected, that may be the image. either way, what he 's trying to demonstrate is the stark contrast between the treasure which is in, which was within the light and the frailty of the uh, container. These ordinary clay jars, even today, if you go to that part of the world, you see they still use them, despite the availability of plastic. Uh, There are large numbers of them, they're broken easily, they're replaced quickly. Paul's point is to highlight this contrast. On the one hand, the majesty, the power of the message, and on the other, the weak, fragile, buffeted messenger. Now, he was painfully aware of all of the limitations placed on him, In terms of the frailty of his human nature, perhaps his own temperament, and the struggles which he was encountering for the name of Christ. And the reason for this is very important, as we know from verse 7, which continues, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. It's a very significant phrase. Um, It's echoed many times in his writings, not just in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And it's it's really this verse and the 2 Corinthians 12 uh, verses which Julian read, which have really saved my life in Christian service. Um, At times, as you go through your Christian ministry, you discover that if it is not for this reality, there really is very little point in continuing. You're tempted to throw in the towel. What Paul realised was that uh, the power of the gospel is seen best in these moments of vulnerability and weakness. Take Paul, for example. When you uh, read the letters, of course, in terms of physical appearance, he was hardly Arnold Schwarzenegger. There are all kinds of uh, frailties, as far as we can tell. His physical frame may not have been much. His speech might not have been too good. He's had eye trouble, as far as we can tell. And Paul's response to all of this would have been, well, that's that's fine as far as I'm concerned, because when people come to faith, when people are converted, they'll know it's the power of the gospel. So that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So in terms of the messenger, that fills out the truth which this letter is proclaiming. It's exactly the case with regard to the gospel itself, as I've already mentioned. Uh, As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So in terms of the messenger and the gospel, the same principle applies. And then of course, as you know from 1 Corinthians, the same paradox is expressed with regard to the Corinthian congregation themselves. God chose the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, and thereby confounded the, quote, strong. And why did he do that? That no one should boast before God. So, in the way which Paul presents uh, his, his uh, letters in 1 and 2 Corinthians, they're, they're expressed in this simple verse, verse 7, that God's power is highlighted in the weakness of Jesus on the cross, in the lowliness of the Corinthian congregation and in the frailty of the messenger, of Paul himself. And so to reinforce this point of power in Christian ministry, true power in Christian ministry, he gives the uh, well-known series of comparisons which we have uh, from uh, verses 7 onwards, 8 and 9 in particular. Um, let me refer to this as the paradox of Christian ministry. Um, there are a series of pairs in verses 8 and 9, and it's an extremely clever piece of writing. If you know little uh, about these verses, uh, the way in which Paul Constructions is very well written. In fact, I met Andrew on the way in. He reminded me of an illustration which I will inflict on you. Um, yeah. It, it uh, was something that happened to me about 30 years ago when... The, or was it 50 years ago, Andrew, when we were working with UCCF? (laughs) And um, I had had a particularly difficult visit to uh, the University of Bath and to the Christian Union there, which was not doing quite what uh, good UCCF groups were meant to do. Um, And after I visited the group, I felt pretty downhearted about the whole thing. And I I drove downtown and uh, parked my car uh, in uh, Bath's Royal Present, if you know that very attractive part of the city. And it was uh, at the end of term, it was May, uh, early June, and uh, there was an ice cream van just in the crescent. And I looked across and it said, Luigi's ice cream on the side of his van, often licked, but never beaten. And uh, it was that phrase, which in its own way was a particular encouragement to me in my (laughs) Christian service, and it exactly reflects the spirit of verses eight and 9. Uh, including the puns, uh, because Paul wrote it in that kind of way, which our English translations don't highlight. But there's a play on words always to highlight that. I may be often lit, but never beaten. The first example from boxing, as far as we can uh, see, so some people say hemmed in, but not hamstrung. It's that kind of play on words which you have in these verses. Uh, The same in in the second category. Uh, Denny says, put to it, but not utterly put out. Um, the third is the uh, suggestion of a hunted person, hunted by men, never abandoned by God. And uh, the fourth, often felled but never finished. Whatever, you, you can't do this when you're um, preaching in another language, but in, in English there are all kinds of ways we might want to try and express the sentiment and the play on words, which Paul is saying, always to highlight this reality. In fact, it's, it's what J.B. Phillips paraphrases, They can knock me down, but they cannot knock me out. Um, He's expressing what Christians, of course, through the centuries have experienced in terms of their personal lives and their Christian ministry. And I suspect it is the experience of most of us in this room, this remarkable paradox of being stretched almost to the limit in our service for God, of feeling the exhaustion and the disappointments that Paul obviously felt when he was writing this letter, and feeling some of those setbacks and some of those pressures. Um, Anybody, in fact, I think, who throws themselves into the work of God will experience these moments. And the experience of all of God's people is that the end of our resources is not the end of God's. That's what these two verses are telling us. So that those moments of pressure and weakness, sometimes the extreme moments, is the very best point when we can experience God's grace and power. Secondly, weakness is the consequence of being united to Christ. It's verses 10 to 12. Because from verse 10 onwards, Paul sums up this theme which he's just developed in those three verses, and he explains the significance of this experience of power and grace and weakness in relation to Jesus himself, in relation to the gospel. First of all, he talks about weakness and the dying life of Jesus. Um, he, He demonstrates that his own experience is simply a reflection of Jesus' own experience. Very important to keep watching that connection. And in the same way as he experienced the same dying life of Jesus, so too he would experience the renewing power of God that raised Jesus from the death. From death, It's that association which matters to him. Uh, you can see it in the sequence of verses. So in verse 10, we carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Verse 11, we're given over to the death of Jesus for, for Jesus' sake. Verse 14, the one who raised Jesus will also raise us with Jesus. So he's saying, as as believers, we simply share in the earthly experience of Jesus. And perhaps it's significant that four times in those verses, 10 and 11, he refers to Jesus, the man, Jesus. And the word he uses in verse 10 could, I understand, be translated the dying of Jesus. Not just the death of Jesus. We carry around in our bodies the dying of Jesus. This process of dying, this process of being put to death, is how he describes our Christian ministry. It's not just the final condition of being dead. So he carries about the dying of Jesus. And you only need to think for a moment about those catalogues of suffering to which I've referred, uh, which are early on in the letter, and then in uh, 4 here, and then in 6, and then in 11, and uh, elsewhere. You only need to read those catalogues to realize that at times he probably did look like someone in the process of being crucified. That's in effect what he is saying. Someone in the process of dying. And he expresses it uh, graphically in other parts of Scripture, of course, Um, the well-known and quite difficult verses to understand, the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. Or in Romans 8, if indeed we share in his sufferings. Or in Galatians 6, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So the simple logic of what he is saying is this, if we are believers, then we are united to Jesus Christ, And therefore there is no avoiding this weakness. And I think it's therefore fair to say that we should suspect all models of the Christian life and of Christian discipleship and Christian spirituality which try to avoid this kind of weakness. The church or the Christian which seeks prestige or security or worldly power is no longer the church or the disciple of the crucified Jesus. That's what Paul is expressing in these verses. But, secondly, he goes on to say, not only is it weakness and the dying of Jesus, but he he describes weakness and the power of the new life. If we're united with Jesus in his death, we are also united in his resurrection. That's the whole point about our life being bound up with Jesus. So he says, verse 11, we are given over to death so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Uh, Verse 14, even more clearly, the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. So for Paul, the resurrection wasn't confined to some future life beyond the grave. It now was part of his experience in the midst of this uh, catalogue of difficulty. Now the life of Jesus was manifest in his body. To die was therefore to live As he says in chapter 6, dying, yet we live on. And exactly as Jesus taught us as his disciples. If you want to live, this is the way. Chapter 13, verse 4. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. It's a lovely description of what it means to be a Christian and how we make sense of all of the ups and downs of our Christian service, united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Well, these first two themes that we've just looked at, I think, truly transform our perspective at those moments of difficulty in Christian service. Uh, We know we're not immune from uh, pressures. God's purpose is not to uh, beam us up out of these problems. Um, all of us in this room as we have a chance to discuss together over meals could produce a catalogue maybe not quite as extreme as Paul's but all kinds of pressures which we face in our Christian service which are totally unavoidable in our Christian service by virtue of being united to Jesus
1: it seems to me this is the realistic
0: teaching of scripture that we find that as we face those challenges God does not remove them but he transforms them By grace and power. I give you my very favourite illustration, uh, and um, apologies to those of you who may have heard me repeat this ad nauseam. Um, It's from sailing. My first experience of sailing uh, was off the west coast of Scotland when we circumnavigated Mull. Uh, it was a lovely summer until we crossed the border into Scotland and uh, the wind uh, increased, the rain came, the uh, skipper of this particular yacht was determined still to take us out and uh, so off we went um, up the Sound of Mull. and. Uh, um, the, the wind was so strong that, the, the, you know how sailing boats keel right over like that, we were sailing at an extreme angle. In fact, I usually say it's the one moment when having one leg shorter than the other, as I do, is a real advantage. Everyone else is falling over, and uh, i was standing perfectly straight. And um, I learned some very basic things in that, that experience of sailing, one of which is, of course, the idea of beating against the wind. Um, If you're not familiar with that, the basic maneuver is that the wind is coming against you, and you uh, head in this direction, you tack, you turn, and then you head in this direction, you tack, and then you're making this zigzag motion as you beat against the wind. In other words, you are using the winds which are against you to make slow and steady progress towards your destination. And that, it seems to me, is a very realistic model of Christian spirituality. Uh, God's purpose is not to somehow remove those gales or or those winds or tide which is against us, but to transform those circumstances in ways which will fulfil his purposes, in ways which will allow us finally to make uh, headway, to reach our destination. The principle here is that evil has lost the initiative, Uh, Whatever it is, and from whatever source these difficulties come, and if we had time to look at 2 Corinthians 12, it's very intriguing to ask where was this coming from, this particular thorn in the flesh which Paul described. He calls it a messenger from Satan, which was given me. So somehow the Lord was involved with this messenger of Satan. So whatever the source, evil has lost the initiative. It's true in the cross, it's true in Christian service. He takes those very pressures... And he enables us to make headway. That leads thirdly, weakness is productive. And in verses 13 to 15, the sense of paradox continues, and he shows that despite these moments of weakness, they are also moments of grace and power which are very productive. I mentioned three. First of all, it produces dependence. And strengthens faith, verses 13 and 14. He says, on the basis of my trust in Jesus, I will continue with this ministry. It is extremely difficult to do so, but a bit like Jeremiah, uh, he cannot give up. It's in his bones. Uh, He cannot stop this uh, ministry. Even if it was very costly in terms of personal suffering... He would not keep quiet. So in verse 13, he quotes from uh, Psalm 116. uh, As as he puts it in uh, there, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe, and therefore speak. Psalm 116, if you know it, is a description by the psalmist of what probably was a near-death experience. It was probably quite close to what Paul describes in chapter 1 of this letter when he was very close to death, whatever it was, uh, and the, the consequent devastating emotional impact which that created. And Paul says, well, God has delivered the psalmist, and God has delivered me. So I am not going to give up. I do not lose heart. I'm going to continue with the same spirit of faith as that psalmist. I believe, therefore I have spoken. Um, In fact, to understand it, it's worth remembering what he says in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where he demonstrates exactly how this works. He says, "Um, the pressure that was on me at that time was so much that I almost despaired of life. But the result of that experience was a determined confidence in God, a dependence that I would never otherwise have exercised if it were not for this particular weakness or pressure. And so he says in chapter 1, verse 9, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the debt. That's in the work in which we're involved, mostly, as I mentioned, in the majority world. One of our colleagues uh, from that part of the world, a Langham scholar, um, asked whether or not there is some correlation between the parts of the world where the church is growing so rapidly, and the overwhelming burdens which the Church of God in that part of the world experiences? Why is it there is growth in the parts of the world where where, uh, people are so poor or where there is civil strife or where there are AIDS problems or where there are uh, challenges uh, um, in terms of Islam or whatever it might be? Is there an association? And I think there is. a growth of the Church is undoubtedly the result of a growing dependence on him by virtue of some of those extreme circumstances. That's precisely what Paul says. All of these happened so that we would not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so it will be for us. These these pressures uh, provoke a strengthening of our faith. What a lovely term which I like from Jim Packer in one of his books. He calls it adult godliness. That going through these experiences... Uh, produces for us uh, that kind of adult godliness, that maturity. God inserts into our elastic spines the the vertebra in these moments of of difficulty. And it will be the same pattern, I think, that he describes there in verse 13. Believing, speaking, suffering, strengthening. The second productive uh, result is that it benefits others. Verses 12 and 15. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Of verse 15. All this, all of these things I've gone through, all this is for your benefit. I think what this means, again, is perhaps best explained with reference to chapter 1, where again he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. His experience of dying actually serves to bring life and salvation to those Corinthians. In other words, they are the beneficiaries of all that Paul is going through. And that's why he uses this phrase in verse 15. All these things, including his suffering, including his experience of dying, are for your benefit. Um, It's not very easy to grasp this, or indeed to appreciate it, in terms of Christian leadership. Uh, to sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of those whom we are serving is a very uncomfortable dimension, isn't it, in what God calls us to do. It's certainly not a very common expectation of leaders. People who get into leadership positions normally think it's you know, other people who are to make the sacrifices. And Paul is obviously reversing that. He says, the connection is there in the text actually, verse 5 and verse 15, for their sake, because it was for Jesus' sake. As he puts it in verse 15. It benefits others. These weaknesses are the opportunity for God's power and grace to be seen in the Christian community. It benefits others. Um, sure. A short while ago when I was uh, sitting in an airport um, and then wandering around the bookshops, you know the kinds of books they have in the uh, airports. And I bought one. It's called The 48 Laws of Power. Uh, the Definitive Guide to Modern Manipulation. And uh, it's written by a man called Robert Greene. And uh, although it's slightly tongue-in-cheek in the way in which he describes some of his principles, his laws of power, he does get quite close to the truth in terms of contemporary attitudes. One, for example, is the key to power is the ability to judge who is best able to further your interests in all situations. You go into a room, you go into a boardroom, you go into a business, you go into whatever the context... Find out who can best further your interests. One of the laws of power, according to uh, Robert Greene. And Paul, if you think of what he said, 1-6, if we are distressed, it is for your benefit and salvation, your comfort. Chapter 4, verse 12, death is at work in us, life is at work in you. Chapter 4, verse 15, all this is for your benefit. Chapter 12, verse 15, I will gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. And so on. 1 Thessalonians 2, I love you so much I shared my own life as well as the gospel. And so it goes on. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, he wrote to Timothy. That kind of stuff will not sell in airport bookshops. But it is the gracious law of Christian service. It's the law of Christian ministry. Weakness in our ministry will be for the eternal benefit of the people whom we are serving. And the third productive result is that it results in God's glory. Verse 15, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. That's another Productive results of what he is going through. All of the trials are put into perspective by virtue of that particular reality. And I wish, to be honest with you, it was also more at the heart of my own Christian service. In other words, he is concerned with God's glory. That is what really matters. And that's one of the productive results. It may cost him everything he had, but it wasn't to do with personal gain or ego or empire building. It was for the glory of God. In fact, the sequence in verse 15, I've often thought, is such a lovely uh, ripple effect. you probably um, noticed the way in which Paul describes it in verse 15. He says, uh, describing the impact of the gospel through his ministry, it reaches more and more people, and the result of that is more and more thanksgiving, and then there's another ripple beyond that. The thanksgiving overflows into a greater declaration of the glory of God. It's a fantastic little summary of all of his own struggles that produced the, uh, the gospel, the, the seed being sown in that Corinthian congregation, you can put up with a great deal in your life and ministry if you know what the end result will be. And this is the end result. God's grace impacting more and more people and God's people rejoicing in those victories and God's glory being the eventual goal of everything that we pass through. It is a very productive result, isn't it? To see our weaknesses in the light of that kind of ripple effect. Well, I come finally to uh, the remaining three verses. Weakness helps us to see what is real. It helps us to see what matters, verses 16 to 18. This chapter, as I've hinted, is right at the heart of Paul's letter. I'm sure for many of us it's right at the heart of our Christian service, it's a profound expression of the true nature of Christian faith, of the gospel, of faith, and of Christian living. It stands in contrast to the cheap gospel, which was obviously being proclaimed in Corinth. There there are a number of clues in 2 Corinthians as to what was being uh, proclaimed by those so-called false apostles, super-apostles, who proclaimed health and wealth for all. Paul is showing that Christianity, the faith in Christ, does not necessarily make any difference to your outward circumstances. It's to do with inward resources. And he gives three contrasts in these well-known verses, on which I'd like us to finish. They demonstrate that weakness helps us to see what is real. It's part of God's grace through weakness to change our perspective. First of all, verse 16, outward decline and inward renewal. There's the first contrast. And of course, it's very familiar to us. I hardly need remind any of us that our bodies are decaying, that outwardly we are wasting away, as he puts it in verse 16. And I'm afraid to say, despite our best efforts, uh, this trend is irreversible. You can try jogging or aerobics or slimming or hair colouring, but you cannot halt the decay he's describing there. One day we will return to dust. A friend of mine sent me a very cheery note the other day about uh, middle age being the period of life when your broad mind and narrow waist change places. <laughs> um, it has happened to me, and uh, you can't do much about that. And as Paul thought of the experiences through which he was going, he'd been describing earlier in this chapter, but also throughout the letter, that he is carrying about in his body the death, the dying of Jesus. His present physical life must have felt extremely frail. And so it leads him again to emphasise the renewing power of God. You see, it's woven into uh, so much of this chapter, indeed the whole book. In contrast to this deterioration which he felt outwardly, the real Paul was being renewed day by day, as he describes it in verse 16. Um, And this, of course, is familiar to us. We're living our lives in two dimensions at once. We live in this world, we experience its joys, we're vulnerable to its sufferings, we're vulnerable to pain, to trouble, just like anybody else. But inwardly we participate in the world to come, the world of heaven, the world of glory. We've been born again inwardly, spiritually, by God's Spirit. And this inner life, which he's been describing actually already in chapter 4, this inner life can keep on growing with vitality and power. So he's continuing the same theme of weakness and power. Even as we grow older, with all of the frailties uh, which that brings, that too can be the occasion for this inner renewal by God's power. Um, often we see this in older Christians, don't we? Um, It's a wonderful thing to see. The problem with old age very often is that people become sour and bitter, or their horizons shrink. They think only of small matters and their illnesses and their selfish concerns. But if you meet a believer for whom this verse is true, uh, in their 80s or even their 90s you discover this wonderful inner renewal. I still have wonderful memories of a person I visited every week when I was a student. Um, uh, an old man who was uh, very frail physically and yet when he spoke of heaven when he spoke of God's people around the world when he spoke about his praying you could see the inner renewal and the power which God was granting him so we need to give at least as much attention to that inner renewal as we do to our outward appearance you notice he says we are renewed day by day and that of course is why why we need to be here and benefit from uh, our fellowship and our time together. This renewal day by day. Second contrast, a well-known one in verse 17, between present trouble and future glory. I often think that Paul could almost have been an Englishman with the way in which he uses understatement in some of his writing here. He describes his sufferings as light and momentary in verse 17. And we've already seen the the catalogues. They were real, they were painful, they were extensive. They they marked so much of this man's life and ministry. But however painful, he realized it was only uh, for the moment, this present life. And compared, as he puts it, to everlasting glory, it is insignificant. But he does more then contrast present suffering and future glory. Um, And I'm not I'd be very glad of your wisdom and how to understand verse 17. He indicates that suffering achieves something for the future in some way. He often makes that link between our suffering and the consequent glory. And this of course is part of what we've already been looking at. We experience both suffering and glory because of our unity with Jesus Christ. That's been his testimony in this chapter that The troubles and the pressures are the inevitable consequence of being united to Jesus and so too will be the power of resurrection life. So too will be the glory to which we are being called. So he says, in the same way, we are guaranteed this home in heaven and eternal glory that far outweighs our troubles. Uh, You probably know that he may be echoing uh, the idea of of chapter 1 where he spoke about his troubles weighing upon him in chapter 1, like some great rock squeezing the breath out of his chest that was pressing on him. This weight of pressure. But now as he, he writes from the perspective of eternity, those troubles are light. And soon he'll experience the weight of God's glory. His troubles are momentary. Soon he'll experience the glory of God, which is eternal. He uses that to image in chapter 1, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, but now he's in touch with the real world weaknesses have helped him to see what really matters not the world which is passing away, but the glory to which God has called us, and that leads to the third and the final thing, which I want to mention, the third contrast in verse 18, the seen and the unseen, again weaknesses especially help us to identify what matters, what is real. Because our world places great emphasis on uh, the scene, doesn't it? On treasures on earth rather than treasure in heaven. And it is not at all easy for Christians like us in this culture to think differently from the way in which the world thinks. Uh, it is extremely common, isn't it, for the, for the majority of our world. It is, uh, the philosophy is eat, drink and be merry, tomorrow we diet that's how people think about life it is is maximise on your present experience and so now is the time to accumulate now is the time to enjoy and it is quite pervasive I think it does impact our churches and our Christian thinking sometimes and what is called for is this kind of radical perspective which Paul gives us in verse 18 and he says actually weaknesses help us to do this and the Corinthians clearly lacked this perspective says in chapter 10, you are looking only on the surface of things. He he called them to think differently. They lived in a display conscious city. They were very interested in image. And Paul needed to call them to change their outlook, to have this perspective of faith. We live by faith, not by sight, he says in chapter 5. So that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Learning to value the unseen, the eternal, that's part of our Christian discipleship, and Paul says troubles, weaknesses, help us to do exactly that. Well, let me uh, draw to a close. This is uh, territory which is not simply academic, but should sink into our hearts and minds, as I'm sure it already has done in our Christian experience. Um, These are the principles not only of the heart of the Gospel, but the heart of Christian ministry. We cannot avoid the realities of weakness, and they become the opportunities for experiencing God's grace and power, however painful that journey may be. Um, Just quite recently I was very pleased to meet some members of uh, the family of Gladys Staines, and some of you will uh, know her, she's an Australian, and her children are the people I met. Graham Staines was an Australian missionary who had been working in uh, India, in Orissa, and uh, you probably know um, that just a few years ago he was murdered outside his church, in fact not just him but his two sons. They were in a land rover outside the church which was set alight by a mob, and uh, he and his two boys were killed, and many people in India were rightly outraged at that event. And uh, The significant thing about his wife, Gladys Staines, was that immediately after that tragedy, she told the newspaper reporter, I'm deeply upset, but I'm not angry. Jesus has taught us how to love our enemies. And she chose to stay. In fact, she'd only just returned to Australia, I think, last year. She chose to stay, carry on with that work, despite um, the tragedy and the loss. And she joyfully suffered in serving the Lord Jesus. And her words, after. That interview were carried not only in the daily press in India, but also uh, around the world. And as a result, um, hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, Hindus came to Christians and asked for Bibles, asked what it was that made Christians different. This is uh, according to my friends in that part of the world. Um, one of them is working in South Asia. Some of you will know him, vinod Ramachandra. Uh, one said, He couldn't help feeling that a middle-aged Australian widow had done more for the cause of the gospel in India than all of the slick evangelists on the 24-hour channel networks beaming into that country. One broken woman. And I think that's the reality of these verses. The power of the gospel is seen through the weakness of the crucified Jesus and it is seen through the frailty of his followers. And therefore, Paul says, we do not lose heart. This is precisely the way in which we will experience the renewing power of God. This is how we experience God's grace. There is no other route. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. Now, Father, all of us have walked this pathway in our Christian service. And it would be no surprise at all if um, some of us, having gone through all kinds of trial in our Christian service, still feel ourselves to be in some dark place or still can't quite make sense of how your grace and power has been operating in the midst of what might seem to us to be a complete tragedy. So we don't want to be simplistic in applying these verses to our hearts and lives. We want to ask that uh, even in these uh, short days together you will again bring by your Holy Spirit the grace of God the renewing power of God into our hearts and minds and lives we pray Lord that um, verses like this which are probably so familiar to us in our work in our service uh, will not just be on the surface of our lives but the realities of your renewing power The realities of your grace will uh, sink deep into us, uh, will renew us. We pray that you will transform our perspective on the world in which we live, uh, so that we increasingly understand the unseen, and not just the seen. You will help us to see these wonderful, productive results from the difficulties which we ourselves are sometimes called to endure. Most of all, Lord, we think of that lovely ripple effect in verse 15, as Paul describes it, we pray that through our faltering ministry, through many of the difficulties which we ourselves encounter, the results will not only be more and more people... Thanks for listening to this episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. For more about Living Leadership, to connect with us, to give, or to sign up for regular prayer news, please visit livingleadership.org. Blessings.